Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching the analysis.news. Joining me in a bit is Frank Hammer, who is the former president and chairman of the UAW Local 909 in Detroit. We'll be speaking about the UAW strike and twists and turns in the strategy of this really historic stand-up strike. But before we get to it, it would be great if you could go to our website, theanalysis.news, and to give a small donation if you can by hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get onto our mailing list. That way you're updated every time a new episode is released. And subscribe and like our podcast on whichever platform you watch the show on, as well as on YouTube, The Analysis News. See you in a bit with Frank Hammer. Joining me now is Frank Hammer. He's the former president and chairman of the United Auto Workers Local 909, which is located at the GM Transmissions Plant in Detroit. He's a former GM worker and worked for GM for 32 years. It's really great to have you today, Frank. Great to be with you. Thank you. Well, last week on September 15th, we saw 12,700 United Auto Workers participate in a stand-up strike uh, they walked out at plants in Toledo, Ohio, Wayne, Michigan, and Wentzville, Missouri. And today, Sean Fain, who is the current president of the UAW, announced that there would be an additional 38 strikes at plants across 20 different states. Um, so why don't we speak about the historic uh, strategy that's being employed by having these targeted strikes, but First, I think it's important to discuss what's really at stake here, what the UAW is calling for, and whether you think the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, will meet the workers' demands. So just to clarify, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think it's got the whole UAW membership and way beyond, very excited. It's, uh, it's not 38 plants. It's 38 parts distribution uh, centers or parts distribution warehouses. And the difference is, of course, that there's no production in those facilities by and large. And the um, this is where, um, like I said, it's parts distribution. So it's more like a logistics warehouse, uh, but it's very key to the distribution of parts throughout the whole uh, system. And this is at GM. This is at Stellantis. This is currently not at Ford because Sean Fain reported that there was progress at the negotiating table with Ford. That's correct. So what do you think um, we can expect right now from the ongoing negotiations between UAW, Ford, Stellantis, and GM? Well, I, I mean, I think what's really striking to me, and I've been now uh, in the labor movement for 50 years, uh, is that the, uh, the UAW... Is really had it, the upper hand in these negotiations, and certainly the upper hand uh, in terms of its media and the message. And I think that this has gotten these three big, large mega corporations set back uh, on their feet because they are not knowing how to cope and deal with this. Never mind the media strategy, the strategy of actually taking out plants in all three companies and taking them out in this measured, selective way, keeping the companies guessing, is really quite profound. And I don't think the companies have found themselves in this situation in decades. 
and they're grasping to figure out what to do. And I think that's a good good place for the UAW to be in. It's having an impact not only on the UAWD, but on beyond many workers in the UAW. As said, we're fighting for the whole working class. Well, why do you think Sean Fain decided to use this stand-up tactic? Is it because it's really taking the big three off guard or, you know, it has like this surprise element where they don't really know what to expect and which uh, distribution centers or, or plants are, are going to go on strike? Is it trying to recreate maybe the sit-down strikes from 1937? So Sean Fain has certainly compared this tactic of the strategy now to the workers' struggle to get when union recognition in the 30s. Uh, of course, then they were sit-ins, and these today are stand-ups. Uh, but they tried to be strategic as they were in the flit sit-downs, uh, striking and, and, and occupying and sitting in on an engine plant, paralyzed General Motors, which at that time was the largest company in the world and virulently anti-union. And it forced GM to recognize the UAW. We're in that kind of moment, I think, is what Sean Fain is uh, communicating. And I think that they're taking a measured approach. Uh, don't want to deplete the strike fund. Uh, want to give the company his opportunity to change their ways and come across with proposals that UAW can accept. So, and I think that uh, my take is that a majority of workers are really enthusiastic about the approach that he has taken. I think a lot of people realize how important the strike is and they see, you know, the connections between the cause and, and the purpose of this strike and, and how it's tied to the labor movement in general. So I get the sense that a lot of people are really supporting the UAW here. And, you know, what are the core issues that um, the UAW is, is pressing on? Like, my interpretation is that the main issues are, you know, getting rid of the tiered system. Um, so some workers, they start working at, I don't know, 15 bucks an hour and they have to work 20 years before they can make it to the top, before they can earn more money and get benefits. And some um, don't even have COLA, so the cost of living allowances. So what else is at stake here? What what else, um, what is the, the platform of the UAW right now? Well, I think that you're emphasizing certainly one of the very core demands that the UAW has put to the to the big three. Uh, and this matter of tiers, this matter of uh, workers occupy, occupying different castes, it's a caste system within the, within the companies. And this is what workers have been forced to grapple with. Uh, I began uh, in 2003 when um, after the GM and uh, Ford and Stellantis all shed their parts operations into standalone companies like Visteon and Delphi that they came back and negotiated a whole new tier at those companies for workers who had not yet even been hired. And we want to fast forward in 2007. Uh, they began to institute that at the, uh, at the big three. And I can tell you, what I know what the argument was then, and I think it's important for people to know, the company sold the UAW, we're either going to outsource all this work to non-union plants, and you can decide to try to organize them, or we'll keep them in-house, you'll still get your dues, you'll be able to represent them, 
but they're going to come in at a lower wage with lower benefits. And the UAW unfortunately agreed. And then this was locked in uh, during the bailout. And what we have today are uh, four or five tiers. You have the, uh, the, the temps or supplemental workers. You have the uh, new hires, that, like you talked about, the progression. They often had to go eight years to make the, uh, their ultimate wage. Uh, you have subcontractors uh, wholly initiated by GM. GM has the subsystems. They have a separate contract, lower wages. And by the way, not one worker at the big three has COLA, not even the legacy workers. That was suspended during the bailout. And the term suspended, I guess, was used very loosely because here we are, you know, 13 years later, and we don't have COA. And that's for everybody, in, including retirees, by the way. But we don't have it for any active worker. So you touched on, I think, one of the most heartfelt issues that has to be um, done away with. And workers have to be, uh, enjoy the right of equal pay for equal work, which is embedded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the U.S. government is a signatory to. Well, let's give some more context to the bailouts in 2008. I remember at the time it was, you know, it was a huge deal. The The U.S. government was bailing out the big three. And I think the, the bailouts both in the U.S. and in Canada amounted to something like 85 billion U.S. dollars across the auto industry. So it was a lot of money. And at the time, you know, the, the big three were saying that they would they needed this money so that they could ensure that people would still have jobs you know i mean they, they obviously cut a lot of those jobs but that some people would still be able to hold on to their jobs and i think you know at the time these you know getting rid of cola and instituting or continuing this tiered system was it presented as a temporary measure or was it presented as you know the gravy train is over you're gonna have to deal with this for the next few decades so um, it was it was it was the former it it it, it, it um, the common let me let me the common understanding, which has been actually repeated over and over in various kinds of media, even in alternative media, is that this was a temporary uh, setback for auto workers, uh, that in the goodness of their hearts they sacrificed. And now that the companies are back on their feet, you know, we're back to get ours that of which we gave up. And that is unfortunately a myth. It was not about making promises to return what was given. It was an actual restructuring. I mean, the czar of the uh, auto uh, restructuring committee that was set up under uh, Obama the book that he wrote is Overhaul. It's called Overhaul. And it was meant as a permanent restructuring of auto. And it really was uh, in line with uh, what Naomi Klein has uh, written about so eloquently about something called a shock doctrine or disaster capitalism. And this was probably one of the prime examples. So here we have this bankruptcy. The market uh, falls out. Uh, from 17 million cars all of a sudden to 10 million. And we have a shock to the system. And Wall Street and the auto companies seize the moment and says, we can take advantage of this and lower and restructure what auto workers are going to get compensated going forward. And they did a hell of a job. 
And this was under George Bush, and this was under uh, Barack Obama, and by the way, with Biden as well. But did this also accelerate the offshoring of a lot of these manufacturing jobs, or was that already underway, I guess, from the early 2000s? So the offshoring of jobs, uh, I can tell you there have been different places along the way where offshoring has been salient, uh, but it goes back to the 70s. It goes back to the 80s. It goes back to the 90s with NAFTA. It goes back to 2005. I remember being in a room when General Motors announced that uh, if the supply, if you're a supplier and you're not based in China, we're not doing business with you. So the offshoring has been this constant stream of threat and loss to the U.S. Uh, auto workers, and it is and it did the bailout didn't stop the offshoring. It, it went on and it went on. And we have today in negotiations, Salantis going out and saying, if you keep this up, we're going to send more truck bag manufacturing to Mexico. So it's, uh, it's been constant. The bailout, you would think, okay, workers made all these sacrifices. Good, we'll keep more jobs. Didn't happen. That's interesting that you point out that this is also, you know, a bit of misinformation even in the alternative media, because that's definitely something that I've heard is that, you know, during the bailout, Workers made those concessions thinking, you know, this is just a temporary measure. We'll have to give up COLA and we'll have to live with these these cuts, but eventually they'll be reinstated. So that's very interesting that at the time it was, you know, basically a restructuring in accordance with what had been instituted previously in post-Ortis models where work was getting even more precarious and people weren't able to rely on benefits. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. And that kind of takes me to additional um, you know, I would say propaganda almost when you listen to the CEOs of some of these companies, such as Jim Farley, who's the CEO of Ford. And, you know, there was an interview with him recently in which he was saying that if Ford were to respect the demands of the UAW, they would go bankrupt. And he was basically saying that, you know, they would have to pay out something like 300000 per worker a year if they were to respect uh, or follow through with these with these demands. But that is, in effect, not true because the, the demand of 300000 a year is based on absolute highest tier. And if you were to monetize all of the benefits that workers would be entitled to, so it would only be a, a fracture of the, the auto worker population. So that is just, you know, pure lies to say that this is what the workers are really demanding. And in addition to that, the automakers have been making huge profits within the first six months of 2023. The big three reported that they made something like 21 billion in profits, so it's just not true that they can't meet the demands of the workers. Yeah, and I I mean, I, I thoroughly agree with what you just said, and I just would add, uh, Sean Fain uh, has, you know, pointed out that the labor costs for the auto companies are is 5% for the production of a vehicle. So, I think that probably you could look back at the bailout, you could look at back at you know, negotiations going way, away, you know, that always in the middle of the, the negotiations, there's always a threat about, oh, this is really bad for the industry and we won't be competitive. And these are ways to shape the, the, the narrative and try to uh, win the, the public to, you know, the UA, you know, the workers are demanding too much and UAW's, you know, this is outlandish, you know, and so on. 
But I think that these are uh, more for uh, media, uh, you know, communications than than reality. They use that justification for everything. They use that justification to send all our all the work to Mexico. Well, we we can be more competitive. Well, they they're making out like bandits, and that's the what the UAW is saying is at some point we got to stop the banditry and reach equity for the workers and working class people. Yeah, they're saying they need to be more competitive, but in the past year they've also spent over five billion in stock buybacks just to decrease um, the or to increase demand of shares and to drive up the share values. So they clearly have money and the CEOs have been, you know, pocketing all sorts of big, big profits. But why do we why don't we speak about Mexico? Uh, I, I'm not so familiar with the struggle there, but I know, um, you know, there were incidents in the early 2000s. I believe that there was like a very tragic incident in Mexico at one of the, the plants there. And I think the conditions for workers in Mexico have also been pretty terrible so glad you brought up mexico um so um and by the way uh today sean vane in his statement uh in his flashing mentioned that there's been expressions of international solidarity from all over the world including from mexico uh so um it, we can go back depending on how far back in the history but i can tell you that for example uh in 1890 Auto workers uh, in in a coaxial line assembly plant for Ford uh, waged a, a militant struggle for uh, against a corrupt union, uh, a pro company union, uh, controlled by the government, um, and uh, in their fight, um, which included occupation of their factory, uh, they had uh, between uh, Ford. And there was also some AFL CIO involvement. Uh, had 300 goons armed with machine guns and guns and uh, you know battering rams that went into the factory and shot nine of the workers. One was killed. And uh, those are the kind of conditions that were faced by Ford workers. Uh, we fast forward uh, to 2019, a different scenario. This was at the GM assembly plant in Silao, where they manufacture uh, trucks. And there, again, workers' militancy, uh, some of the workers um, started to refuse overtime, mandatory overtime, and started to fight against Speedo in support of our strike here at GM, where we had a 40-day strike um, about many of the same issues that we're fighting for now. And those workers were fired. And they went on to form their own, uh, they kicked out the corrupt union that was uh, in control, and they formed their own independent union. Uh, but these, and they, they, you know, they're, they get paid a tenth, a tenth of what U.S. workers get paid. And they did negotiate a contract, they did get some raises, but they need a lot of support from U.S. workers to raise their level to a livable uh, life and a livable wage, much in the same way that we're fighting here for the same. Do you think the big three are scared that the amount of support behind the UAW in the U.S. and the scale of the strikes will inspire uh, workers in Mexico to also go on strike? Uh, it's already happening. It's already happening. <laughs> it's already happening. And... 
there is, well, I'm happy to report that there are a growing number of UAW members and supporters who are wanting to support and aid workers in Mexico who are also waging this fight. And in fact, one of the leaders of this uh, GM uh, uh, situation in 2019 will be in Detroit this weekend. And he will be meeting up with UAW workers and they're going to be trading notes and comparing their life experiences and their work experiences. And I see this as growing. And uh, I also, I mean, not only Mexico, but I heard of Canadian workers uh, who have been very inspired by uh, Sean Fain's live streams and so on. So there's a lot of workers that are looking from different countries and to see what's going on down here in, in the U.S., and so I, I really uh, respect uh, Sean Fain for the burden that he's uh, taken on in providing this new leadership for the UAW. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, what do you make of the domestic politics in the U.S. at the moment? I mean, Trump has obviously taken advantage of the strike and he's trying to position himself as someone who is pro-auto worker, but he has a pretty bad track record. So maybe you could speak about his track record. He's said that he's going to go to Detroit next week on September 27th to make an appearance. And so far, the Biden administration hasn't really said that they're going. Um, the spokesperson, uh, Karen Jean-Pierre, she hasn't confirmed or denied that Biden will be making an appearance in, in Detroit. So it seems like the Biden, Biden administration has been caught with you know the tail between their legs, so to speak. Um, it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs, but maybe they're just completely intimidated by Sean Fain's amazing leadership. So, yeah, surely uh, Biden would have done himself a favor by doing as Bernie Sanders did, which was he came to Detroit. Bernie Sanders came and addressed uh, uh, a rally of uh, 700 auto workers and supporters. Uh, and in right in the lead up to the to the strike, and I think Biden would have been able to do that, uh, could have done that, could still do that, but unfortunately he's compromised because he's part. He was part of the deal of the restructuring, and it's kind of like now he's in position of having to reverse himself, you know. And and the eyes of Wall Street, that don't work, you know. You made a deal. And you're going to stick with it. And I think that's why Biden, you, you haven't seen him. Um, I think, you know, if, if, I, if I was asked, well, well, what could Biden do for negotiations? He could get about the business of um, talking about raising the minimum wage and leading a movement in this country. We have not had a raise in the minimum wage in 14 years. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it was a, Bush or an Obama or a Trump or a Biden. And it's clear that the entire class of capitalists is quite satisfied with the state of affairs. And it's sort of like holding us down at the same time encouraging. I saw comments from Obama and Biden encouraging our current strike. But if, as long as you got your foot down on what the minimum wage is, it's kind of hard to go against that. So I think that's what we need. We need a campaign that truly raised the minimum wage after 14 years, certainly in the face of all the inflation that we've been enduring post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, Biden just, you know, let the parliamentarian decide on that one. He didn't really seem to care so much about increasing the minimum wage. 
for whatever reason. I mean, he was in a position to actually do something and he didn't, which is, you know, it's pretty regrettable. Um, but, you know, the current state of affairs, I my sense is that people who are out striking, they have a lot of energy and motivation, but that they're maybe a bit pessimistic as to the result of all of their efforts. Whereas you grew up being active in the 60s. And I would say that, you know, that particular decade of the 60s was a very, you know, what's the word to use? I mean, it, it, it was it was such a turbulent time. I obviously wasn't around, so I can't speak from experience, but a turbulent time, but it was also very inspiring to see all these different movements and people out on the street. So I wonder what your sense is in, in comparing the current movements today for, you know, the climate, whether it be movements such as Extinction Rebellion, The Last Generation, or the UAW movement, um, compared to a lot of the movements that were going on at the time that you were also involved in, and, and whether you feel that there's more of a sense of pessimism now compared to back then. So I, I'm, I'm happy to answer the, your question, but I don't want to let Trump off the hook. That's right. We didn't get to Trump. Okay, let's start with Trump first, and then we'll get back to it. And I think this is very, very important because now we have Trump uh, fishing in troubled waters by coming to Michigan, I think, this coming Wednesday. And, um, but I think he's, I'm, I think he's kind of like dumb as a rock because what he's done is now attacked uh, the UAW leader who is standing up to the billionaires, Sean Fain. And he thinks that by attacking Sean Fain that he's going to make inroads into the UAW. And I think he's going to be sadly mistaken uh, on the contrary. But I think it's very important because a lot of our, you know, there was, Always this notion that there were a lot of auto workers that supported Trump in 2016, many of them who had supported uh, Bernie Sanders for that. And I think it's very important to explain uh, how uh, Trump sells this snake oil. And I want to quote from a Detroit News article that was published in 2015, which said Trump suggested this is right before he run for election, suggested one way to stop automakers expansion to Mexico is by moving some production out of Michigan to lower wage states. So he didn't have a problem with uh, shaming uh, UAW members. Uh, and in fact, he said, your U.S. automakers could ship production away from Michigan to communities where auto workers would make less. And quote, you can go to different parts of the United States and then ultimately you do full circle. You'll come back to Michigan because those guys are going to want their jobs back, even if it is less. That's Trump's strategy. And in fact, that's been the strategy of the whole capitalist class. And he's spelling that out. And if anybody thinks that that's worker friendly, you should read. You should go back and read the article because it's hostile to our membership. And here he is coming, thinking, currying favor with us. It's not going to work. He's he's a charlatan. And he's, he's, he's trying to fool a lot of workers into thinking that he's their buddy. He's not. He's their enemy. Now, to go to your question. So the movement in the 60s uh, was definitely, uh, 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 you know, revolution was in the air. We had uh, in Detroit, we had um, the revolutionary, uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers who were shutting down plants. 
demanding uh, rights and and uh, for 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 black workers in the UAW and in the industry. And there was all this ferment. I mean, I don't you know the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, um, but there was a level of activity that um, propelled uh, a lot of us to become activists for a long time. And today, I mean, you begin you're beginning this you begin to see this in different instances, uh, especially in the environmental movement. And I noticed that the media, mass media, the corporate media, did not report on the massive demonstration in, in New York City. Uh, I think it was last Sunday. Um, yeah, and there was not a peep, not a peep, uh, not even a so-called liberal corporate media. And this is the sign, and I think there were demonstrations in many, many other places, and this is a sign of a rising movement, certainly among young people who are confronted with the existential threat of what is climate catastrophe going to look like to me or to parents with young children? And I think that there is no way around having to build a, that kind of movement. And I'm glad to see that there, that there now there's a, uh, an increasing harmony or homogenizing of interest between the global uh, and the climate catastrophe movement and the UAW. And we had over a hundred organizations that are in espousing climate change as the issue or social justice issues who come out in support of the UAW strike and especially in the demand for a just transition now that the UAW gets confronted with all the electrification of the industry and battery production and non-union plants. And I have to say, uh, having been active 50 years now in the labor movement, that the kind of excitement that I'm seeing in the working class, seeing it's this rally where Bernie came and Rashida Tlaib and so on, uh, to see the level of excitement and the anger and the hope is really refreshing. And I see, I think that this is a, 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 a wake up going on in the working class movement. And I think that people should have some enthusiasm about where the, the direction of this movement, where, where it's going to go. Well, you bring up an important point, and that's the issue of electric vehicles. Um, I think the Inflation Reduction Act had provisions in there to support the electric vehicle industry at something like you know nine billion dollars worth of loans. And the UAW workers are not saying that they don't want this just transition to electric vehicles, but what they're concerned about is that they won't have union jobs in you know electric vehicle plants, and so they want to ensure that there is that the, um, the current levels of employment are maintained and that money is invested in this just transition. You, you can't just have a, a green transition without actually subsidizing it and, and paying for it and ensuring that workers are able to transition properly from regular auto worker jobs to electric vehicle jobs. So how would you say the media has covered um, this angle of electric vehicles? Are they trying to paint workers as being opposed to any sort of green transition? So I want to say, to Sean Payne's credit, to the UAW, uh, they have made it very clear that they're not against uh, the transition to electrification. So there is an understanding and a, comp a comprehension that uh, global, I mean, Sean Payne just said a few days ago, that global warming is real. And so, but 
obviously the companies, as they did with the bailout, they see a moment here where they can take advantage of a situation. Yeah, they're 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 going to go to electrification, but they're going to use this opportunity to once again uh, create another tier of auto workers. And if the uh, Ultium battery plant is any example in Ohio, you know where we high rate worker the, the legacy workers making thirty two dollars an hour, they want to bring battery workers into twenty one. And this is not setting a good standard for auto workers of the future. Uh, sustaining sustaining a twenty dollar wage is not going to cut it, and. So again, the companies um, uh, to to engage in the transition, the working class has to be part of it. It has to be something that workers don't. It's not a win lose proposition. It's got to be a win win. Workers want to see a change in regard to uh, ending carbon emissions, but they don't want to do it at the expense of their own livelihood, and that's awfully reasonable. For, for anybody, and everybody can understand that, and that the another thing that Biden can do is ensure that uh, the workers that are brought into the battery plants are commensurate or part of the master UAW agreements with the big three. Well, Frank Hammer, it was really great to speak to you. And uh, Frank Hammer, you're um, the former president of the UAW Local 909 in Detroit, and you've had all sorts of experience as an activist as well. So it's really great to have your insights on this historic ongoing UAW strike. I'm so glad to spend this time with you and we, we move on, we go forward. Thank you so very much. Hope to speak to you again. And thank you so much for watching the analysis.news. If you enjoyed this content and would like to donate to the show, please go to our website, theanalysis.news, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And we'll see you next week.